Hi, welcome to another episode of Games All in right. Schools and Libraries. And I am super excited because this is not just a one-on-one conversation, but a very interesting, I hope, conversation with two people that I recently met um, that I'm super excited because we're going to be talking about running simulations. Um, both of these men are professors at the university level, use simulations in their classes. There's definitely some avenues in which um, their work coincides, and then there's obviously the different disciplinary um, differences that they um, each have to operate within. Um, so I'd like to introduce Jeremy Cadell from Washington University and David Tomchek. Um, from Magical University in Connecticut that I'm going to let him pronounce. But Jeremy, <laughs> thank you guys both for being on the show. Thank you. Okay. So Jeremy, why don't you um, explain about yourself, your professional background, and then um, how you use simulations and what you do. Sure. Um, so my PhD is in political science. I teach at Washington University, which is in St. Louis, which is confusing. Um, and I teach in international and area studies. So before I came back for grad school, I was a practicing attorney for a while. I was a foreign service officer with the State Department. And in all of those situations, we had a lot of real-world experience. So I was looking for ways to bring real-world experience into the classroom along with the theory that we're teaching. And that's sort of uh, where we started with simulations in my classes. Okay. David? I teach at a university called Quinnipiac University out in Connecticut, and my background is um, I actually started at NASA, and I did actually a detail over at the State Department, nice. so another <laughs> point of connection for us. <laughs> um, and so I teach entrepreneurship and game design at Quinnipiac. I, my PhD is in entrepreneurship and organizational behavior, but my dissertation was the effect of video games on entrepreneurial skills and intent, and so i when I came to Quinnipiac, one of the things that I really wanted to do is get my students as close to real world experience as possible. And in some cases, it's not easy or it's not possible to get them immersed fully into something. So using simulations is a really powerful tool in both the game design and in the entrepreneurship space. Cool. So let's give for each one of you to sort of give um, like a more explanation about like the types of simulations that you do and what your intent is when you run these with your students. So uh, Jeremy, why don't you go first? Okay, sure. So I think I, I use them for a variety of reasons and they usually start at the small scale and build up to the, the more intense. Uh, so at the smallest scale, I'm often using them as a replacement for calculus. Um, in, instead of explaining a formal theory and going through all the calculus on the board and figuring out what the equilibrium path is in a, in a complicated formula, I find it's much more engaging for the students and they remember it a lot better when in, instead of that we actually play out the scenario. Uh, and so that could be something as simple as a deck of cards or uh, today we were just playing a simulation called Donut Wars where they were negotiating. It was simulating Fearon's bargaining model of the rational war model. Um, and when that breaks as down... You do. I'm sorry. I said, I said, as you do, as they do, as you do. (laughs) But what's fun about that is when the negotiation negotiation breaks down and they decide that they're going to have a war, uh, there are immediate casualties to that war. And that means that I take two of the donuts out of the box that they're fighting over and throw them in the trash. And that gets such a reaction from first year (laughs) college students. It's as if I have killed someone. It is amazing. Uh, so that's just a simple one-day type thing that we do. Uh, they read the article, we talk about the math, and then we play it out in the classroom. Uh, but some classes, I did one this summer that was a full eight weeks, and there the simulation was front and center. The entire thing was uh, based on the decision on whether or not to intervene in Rwanda, and throughout the eight weeks, they were playing the roles of uh, National Security Council members, people at different agencies. And so along with the classroom reading, that was sort of built on the back of a simulation that took us over a one-year real-world scenario. So it just depends on what I'm trying to get out of it. But really, I would say no matter how long the simulation lasts, it's always about a strange word, empathy, when we're talking about government. But actually, what is it like to sit in that building with the information they have and try to make a decision that's going to have real world consequences. Well, and I think that's such an interesting point. I mean, empathy actually 
when it comes to my classes and teaching game design, that's the point where we start, you know, as far as understanding the needs of your users so you can design a game for them. But especially like for your side, for where you're talking about it, empathy for, you know, the people that they could be working with, you know, I must imagine that you get a definitely, I mean, you had, if you get a strong response over donuts, what must the response be from students when they're trying to, you know, process these very complex, difficult situations where, you know, lives are at stake, lives have been at stake, lives have been lost. Mm -hmm. Um, I think with Rwanda that that simulation was very effective in that because it was it was far enough removed that students didn't actually know a lot of details about it historically, mm-hmm. but they did know it was significant and that it was a tragedy. And so that kind of kept them grounded in that situation. Um, and as we went through the simulation and they got the materials, the simulation materials were actually the uh, like the declassified government got documents that what they would have been getting at the time. And so they could sort of see that. And then at the end, we have a significant debrief session where we, we look at the after action reports, the news articles, the books that have been written about it since then to see where mistakes were made and how that might have changed things. Um, that one is actually, I, I think students felt that because they knew the situation. History provided us a lot of, a lot of context there. Others where we get a little far more, a little more removed from the realities of history um, those I'm usually the one that has to stop in, step in and say, hey, listen, uh, the decision you're about to make, like this could cost lives. This is a serious decision because in the classroom, when there's not enough context, sometimes it can just be fun to have a war. Right. Um, and so, you know, like the donut wars, the purpose of that is, is to have fun a little bit with the model, um, but also to reinforce for them that, okay, I just threw away two donuts, but in the real world, that's people's lives on the line there. Mm-hmm. Well, and David, your simulations, because you teach entrepreneurship, also have that like very real human response sort of element within a complex system. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about um, that one of the ones that you do is about them being owners of a six-month-old startup and, you know, kind of working through a process of complex problems. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest... Power, most powerful aspects of simulation is that empathy because it lets you fast forward in time instead of saying, hey, you actually have to have run a business for six months. In this case, I can give them all the information and put on their shoulders and have them embody the, the weight of responsibility of owning a business and having employees without actually having to have them do that and having hundreds of thousands of dollars and go through the trials and tribulations that way. So it lets them feel all of that stress. And in the case of the this six-month-old business, the simulation is set up that each scenario that they go through, they go through six different scenarios over the span of three hours. And each scenario builds off of the previous one. So the first scenario might be that they're talking to a person, a reporter, who has gone into their kitchen and realized that their chefs aren't following proper food safety procedures and who the reporter comes out and says i was going to write a really nice piece but i saw this and now i'm going to write a very damaging op-ed article about the the dangers of the restaurant i'm probably going to do an article about health safety i'm going to definitely call the food inspector and they have to say well how are we going to respond to this and some people they start to realize that they feel such ownership of their business that they say, well, can we pay you to not write this article? And then we get to have a discussion afterwards. Why in that moment did you decide that the best thing to do was bribing the person as opposed to trying to figure out how can we solve this problem for our business or handle it somewhere else? But even better is that whatever decision they make in that first scenario then carries over into that second one. And the second one is an upset customer who's saying, I have... I had bad customer service and I also had health issues and this is just like what was in that article that was written before and now they have to deal with how how their decisions in the first place carry over into the second and then the third one is a PR person who says well hey I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you guys have horrible PR because you didn't handle your customer correctly or whatnot and as they go along they're getting these experiences that we can at the end say what was it like to be in that person's shoes? And it causes them to stop and really examine 
their behaviors, but also say, now I understand why other people have come to these decisions along the way. And I don't like this or I do like this. So I will either stop doing that behavior or I'm going to continue doing yeah. it. So, and that actually, so speaking about the human piece then, um, when you're working with your students in these simulations, um, I would imagine that you get a wide range of responses and some of which may be rather unintended or unexpected. Um, yes. What would be some of the uh, more interesting responses that you've had, maybe that, that made you rethink things or that you just didn't expect and you had to adjust to? What, what were some of the responses that you've had? So I've had, in the case of the upset customer, I had one group that started yelling at the customer, blaming them for their poor decisions and saying at the end, sue us. And <laughs> which is not a response I was expecting from a negotiation class, especially right. at the end. Um, but I've also had other ones that went in a completely different direction. There's one of the scenarios uh, a truck driver has delivered the wrong product to their company and they so they don't have the food that they need in order to make the meals and the truck driver is incredibly worried that they're going to get fired because hey my boss is a horrible person and I've had several groups that have gone out of their way to talk to the boss so they I come in as the actor and act as the boss and like oh yeah this is the earth, third time they mess and they will talk me down and say, no, no, we want him, we like him, this is a situation we can all work together. And I even had one group that said, we're going to hire him because he should not have to work in such an unpleasant work <laughs> environment. And here's how we can use him to help grow our business. I was like, holy crap, <laughs> I was not expecting huh. that. So it, you get some really amazing behaviors at both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Jeremy, what about you? Yeah, I would say, um, Assassination is one that comes up a lot with my students. <laughs> it's totally not in any of my simulations. But, we'll just uh, throw it to 11. Oh you know? I, can, I can guarantee at some point a student will ask me, could we assassinate someone? And it's often someone in their own government. They're trying to take someone out who's, who's being particularly problematic. Um, and that's always a discussion where I tell them, no, we can't do that. Um, I'll tell you one that, that's interesting. I was thinking about this because I, we were having a, a session today on inclusivity and group work at the university, and it, it brought this to mind. Um, there is a tendency in my classes, particularly among male students, to come in with an, an overinflated idea of how much they know about foreign policy um, and a lot of confidence. And so it's sort of the mansplaining problem in the classroom. And this comes up a lot where you set up a simulation in which someone is the, uh, the director, the, the national security advisor. They, are, they hold a position of power. And someone else is assigned maybe two levels down in the bureaucracy. Um, and we noticed in the simulation that when male students were playing those lower level roles, even when a female student was at the, the highest position, uh, they would get talked over, they would get disagreed with, they would get talked down. Um, and those type of sort of real-world effects coming into the simulation were creating a problem. And so we stopped and we had a discussion about it uh, in the classroom. And do we think this actually goes on in government? And yes, it does. Um, and how could we address these issues? And it was a very interesting experience where, where things that were not part of the simulation design at all were coming in and other students were recognizing it and saying, hey, what's going on there? Which I think is great because... Uh, I always equate in my classrooms when I'm teaching a theoretical model, there's a, a famous phrase that all models are wrong, some models are useful. Right? <laughs> models leave things out, they simplify mm -hmm. the world so that you can get some leverage over a specific relationship, but it's not covering everything. And the same thing happens with simulations. And so when these things come in from the real world that weren't intended, it's a great time to stop and think for me through the game design and whether or not this should be incorporated. Um, but for students to say, oh, well, that's interesting. So we can sit here and think everybody's trying to, to do a cost-benefit analysis. But in fact, these type of gender relationships and other things may be going on in the decision-making process that are leading to results we would not anticipate otherwise. Well, so now that we've kind of like touched a little bit, you mentioned design. I think for a lot of people who would be interested in 
running a simulation, I think it's good that we kind of get into either how you design or how you, you know, find them, you know, like somebody else had published a simulation that you decide to use and implement your classes. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And I want to say that, um, Jeremy and I both went, um, a month or so ago to, uh, Nisaga, which was an amazing conference. If you're interested in simulations, I'd never been before and was just like, honestly, it's probably one of the best professional development, um, opportunities I've ever been to. Um, but so the North American, North American Simulation and Gaming Association, and I ran a version of my espionage simulation that I've done with my seventh grade students. And it was very, in, it was super interesting because it's very like a closed system. I know exactly who my students are, exactly the pieces. I know everything that's going on. They have to do this because this is for a grade. But when I was, you know, doing my simulation, um, with the audience at Nasaga, you know, it definitely didn't go as I expected. I was okay with what happened. There were definitely some things that in retrospect, you know, if I could, I definitely wanted to turn the clock back on some things. But I think it's one of those things where, you know, when you're wanting to run a simulation, there's so many different factors that you can anticipate and you can work through and you can, you know, plan out. But then there's just the reality of what happens and then how you rework that. So let's talk, I mean, from the beginning, like let's say that, okay, you want to do something simulation wise. Um, David, we'll start with you. How do you get started in this process? That's a really cool question because for me, the, the first and foremost thing is I say, what is the lesson that I want them to take away? Where, where's the point that I want them to empathize with and to really walk away and be thinking about? And then, I start working backwards and saying, what are the parts that I want them to be able to adjust or to play around with? So going for a very simple example, I created a simulation where it's designed to be, it's designed to seem like it's a no-win simulation. It's uh, three zookeepers have come together, they have different animals that they can trade amongst each other, and they're being told you must get certain animals or else you will be fired. So the I want them to empathize with what it's like to be in a no-win situation and to for the pieces that can be manipulated, animals that can be traded, and I also wanted to have a reward built into it. So it's not just pure punishment, but there's also a financial incentive for trading and getting the animals that you want. And so I use that as my springboard and I start building out from there. Now in this case, the simulation, I wanted to keep it simple, so I didn't add too many additional dimensions, but I did say in the instructions, you can use whatever outside resources you need to in order to help you with the simulation. They'll typically start out looking at it and saying, well, all the information's here on the sheet of paper, but truly creative groups that are trying to find a win solution for all of the parties since there aren't enough animals for everyone to be able to walk away without getting fired will start looking and saying well why did he give us the ability to go and use our computers or use our phones and those who are even more creative will start looking for how do we buy rare exotic animals because apparently there is a market for it and the answer is for about six to ten thousand dollars you can buy exotic animals mm -hmm. and they start realizing the financial incentives they've gotten can be then turned around and used to help buy animals to make sure that everyone walks away with more money than when they started, but also with all the animals that they needed. And that really opens their eyes to looking for win-win solutions to what seem to be unwinnable scenarios. So, so there's not just a process of design for you in terms of how you set it up, but then also how like they're gaming the game isn't a bad thing is what you're saying. You're wanting them to figure out the rules of the game so that they can shape them, modify them, change them to get to an end point. Because in the real world, since you teach entrepreneurship, that's what you have to do is you have to figure out your pathway yeah. in order to be successful. Yeah. And there are some simulations where I have to put much stricter boundaries around it and that's totally fine. But in most cases, when the students start trying to take this take the simulation and stretch beyond what the apparent boundaries are is when you can get some really interesting and innovative solutions that can make them make everyone around them stop and say wait a second why didn't we consider this first 
or this is a really cool point and they'll bring it up again when you're doing a debrief at the end and you can then talk about well why did we all start to go down this one path or why didn't we listen to this one perspective or why didn't we consider all the different ramifications of this one decision so I really want to make sure for when I design scenarios that I allow for that creative space because so much learning can happen when a student finds it. And Jeremy, would you say your approach is similar or do you go a different way? Yeah, no, I think my approach is exactly, I always start with the learning objective. What, what do I hope to get out of this exercise? And then, you know, you're supposed to then ask, is the game the most effective way to, of course the game is, because I want to play the game. So it's always the game is always the answer for the learning <laughs> objective. Mm -hmm. But I do want to know what that objective is. Right. Um, and then, yeah, I think my first, my first step is, is there something I can take off the shelf that someone's already done that I can quickly bring into the classroom and start, start trying out? And so like the Donut Wars game I was talking about, uh, I want to give credit where that's due because that was uh, Dr. Rebecca Evans at Ursinus College. At a, at a political science conference, we had a teaching and learning conference where there's a games track. And so there it's great because lots of people exchanging games – in the same department, the same subject, we're all do teaching the same topics. Uh, and I get a lot of resources there that I can just take off the shelf. A conference like Nasaga then is interesting because you've got people from many different disciplines and there I kind of pick up mechanics or ideas that I might be able to adapt and put into a game. Mm -hmm. And then usually I, I start, I'm, I'm very cognizant, I think because in addition to like regular classes, I'm also teaching adjunct classes. And when you're teaching an adjunct class, you become very very, uh, I guess, keen on the idea that you can invest a lot of time into course preparation ahead of time for a course that may not make or may not have enough students that it's actually going to pay off in the end. And so I like to start small and say, okay, what's the, what's the minimum viable product here that's going to get this idea across in class and let's pilot it, see it if it works. And then if it does, I'll start building out on that until it eventually becomes something more complex. Mm -hmm. Um. Let's see, when it comes to using like, so when it comes to simulations, what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned or that you've learned along the way from doing this that um, kind of informs your process of how you use them now? I think that's the, a the, really awesome question. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was just going to take the easy one, which is what everybody learns first is uh, the debrief is key. Leave enough time for debrief, leave enough time to actually have a discussion about what happened in the simulation or game and for students to express that and in some way meaningfully sort of, uh, I guess, uh, encapsulate, summarize it for themselves and present it to others in some way so that they really take that lesson home. Otherwise, you can just end up with, that was a fun experience. I remember we threw donuts away, but I don't remember why we did right. it. Right. <laughs> well, and I think it's probably important for you, too, in terms of feedback as far as, like, the simulation itself. Even if they don't necessarily realize they're giving you feedback, you're able to say, oh, okay, they totally did not get this. Yeah, or they yeah. absolutely got this, you know, so... They think they're just talking about their experiences, but really you're just mining them to, you know, for next time, which is totally fair. Totally fair. Yeah. Yeah. So David, what about you? I will, I think for me, the biggest, the biggest thing is when I fail in the design of some aspect of the simulation, mm -hmm. because in my head, it, I have like everything fully mapped out. It's all logical. Of course, they're going to go down this path. And then they don't. And I have to say, well, why? What, where did this simulation break down? What assumptions did I bring into this that caused me to be blind to how they might react or what they may do or what they may even be thinking? And what it often does is it ties into the debrief where at the end I can say, well, this was how this component was supposed to work and you guys didn't go down that path. Let's talk about why not. And then for me, I get to redesign it for the next time and it can be absolutely awesome. For them, it becomes an opportunity where they get to say, well, here's how we think or here's why we're thinking the way we do. And they feel a bit more empowered about it, knowing that they, they kind of got one over on me. But at the same time, it leads to a really awesome discussion of different thought processes. And I can explain why I thought that they were going to go down one path and they can explain why they didn't. And that's just an incredible discussion opportunity that can lead to 
15, 20 minutes, even 30 minutes of a conversation where everyone walks away understanding and empathizing a lot more. Is there something that you wish you could simulate better than you're doing now or something that you haven't tried, you haven't attempted, but you would love to see how that might work if done well or successful in your class? Yes. Hmm. So I, for entrepreneurship, one of the hardest things to get people to do is to take the first step of launching a business. And since sometimes that could be like, oh, I need $100,000 in order to buy a storefront or what, that's a really vital component to, if we can simulate that, that experience of taking that first step, that would be awesome. And that's something I keep bashing my head against the wall on because I haven't figured it out yet. I'm hoping to sometime in the near future, but mm-hmm. probably not. Um, we'll, figure it, we'll figure it out by the end of this. Don't worry, we got yes, you. Yes, probably by <laughs> the end. You're with friends. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> What about you, Jeremy? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think that the the biggest challenge I have is in in students who are resistant to the outcomes of simulations or games because they have uh, preconceived notions about the world. And when the game doesn't work out as they expected it to work out or their strategy didn't play out in the way they thought that they would, Mm -hmm. um, they they look for an exit clause. Uh, It's because uh, the professor made this decision or because the game was designed to lead us to this conclusion or it was forcing us this way, it wouldn't happen that way in the real world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a way to bring in actually um, some sort of real world check to say, yeah, this is the way, I mean, it's not perfect, but this is this is a reasonable assumption of what would happen in the real world if you tried that strategy. Um, so one thing I've done that's that's checked that a little bit is I started having them do forecasting exercises. So at the beginning of the semester, uh, we pick 10 questions that are related to the topics we're discussing. Uh, something like, will North Korea test a intercontinental missile before whatever the end of the semester date is? And they have to assign a probability assessment of whether or not that will happen, that they get to update over the course of the semester. But then they're actually graded on the accuracy of their predictions, which I actually I minimize in the final grade. But that threat of being graded yeah. over guessing about what's going to happen really brings home to them that their, their overconfidence and their assumptions about the way the world works, um, that really brings it home to them and forces them to question that a little bit more. And I think that's been effective in sort of, I don't want to say breaking them down, but... Uh, <laughs> opening them up to the possibility that their preconceived (laughs) ideas about what must be happening in the world uh, may be wrong. Well, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I, I mean, I think the worst part of my job, I mean, I work with gifted kids is my classes are supposed to be more challenging than the normal classes. And so Mm. I, you know, I mean, I struggle with, you know, assessment is not the same thing as grades, obviously, but sometimes, you know, stuffing points into that monster is really effective when it comes to generating results. I mean, if you're talking Mm -hmm. about simulations, my gosh, one year we actually got permission to not do letter grades in our classes. Um, Because I do want to talk about assessment next when it comes Mm to um, these simulations, because that's an important part. But um, when I didn't do, when we didn't do letter grades, there were three sort of unintended things that I didn't expect. And one was, Um, kids saying things like, hey, you know, this isn't graded, but I've got this Spanish project, so can I work on that instead? And we're like, what? No, Mm -hmm. like, the whole point (laughs) was to take away the grade so, like, they wouldn't have that point pressure on them that they could just try to do their best. It was very idealistic. Um, So there was that, but that practicality of, you know, you know, I'm going to get the same amount of points regardless, so I might as well do the Mm -hmm. thing that spend my time, you know, and something that I would want more time for. Um, The other was uh, kids would do work, and I'd sit down with them, give them feedback. Okay, this is what you need to do to make this better. This is what you need to do. Like, let's say it was like, you know, like four out of five in terms of like just giving them some indication. And kids were like, yeah, I felt like I did enough, you know? Like, I don't Mm. really need to do any more than that. This is pretty good. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm teaching my students to, you know, like, (laughs) lower the value of their work. Okay, (laughs) that's not good. But then I had a parent once at um, at, – parent-teacher conferences where we were talking about this the next year when we put grades back in um, 
And she said, you know, she totally understood why we were doing it, and she was cool with it. She said the only thing is, is it took away their ability to earn that A. That her daughter worked mm-hmm. harder in my classes than she did in any of her others, so that when she got a good grade in her class, like she felt she had really earned that grade. And I thought that's really interesting. You know, I mean, I did. I like just. I just. You know, again, it's like when you run a simulation, like you like this open ended. Let's see what happens, kind of thing. You know, there's these sort of unintended things, and this was as much of a you know kind of like in an optimal world. You know, this mm-hmm. class would not need to have grades. Kids mm-hmm. would just work to their best ability. And, you know, it, it honestly, it didn't work out. And we wanted this for years. We got permission. We're like, nope, we're done. <laughs> because and sometimes, you know, I mean, like even today, it's some kids talk, they gave a presentation and they're worried about a couple typos. So we're in it. It's like the content was amazing. You guys worked so hard on this. I'm not worried about a couple typos. I have typos in my, well, it says it on the rubric. I'm like, you're fine. You know what yeah. I mean? But it's like, but they, it will, it will force them to like pay attention. So let's, and, and I wonder like, cause, and that was as much like a kind of simulation as far as like, can I have this little Marxist utopia given class <laughs> in terms of grading? And the answer is no, they're capitalists and capitalism. Yay. There we go. So we learn all the time. <laughs> but so, so like, how do you assess what is it just based on participation? Is it based on like specific outcomes and simulations? Like how do you assess, give them feedback, grade them on what they're doing on these? Well, I think I... that there's two pieces to that assessment because you have the assessment of how they're doing during the simulation. And then you have the assessment of what they have learned from the end. So mm-hmm. is there a particular part that you want us to focus on? Uh, whichever. I mean, I think, I think both are valid. Okay. Jamie, do you want to go first? Yeah, I would say my goal is never to assess the game. Um, as a designer, I guess, or as, a, as an instructor, I'm trying to get... My goal is to have the game actually be driving them rather than the grade. Um, and it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I, I hate trying to entice them to participate in a game with a point system. Um, so I do, instead, I assess whether the game is reaching the learning objectives with other forms of assignments that maybe refer back to the game or built off of the game. Um, but I'm really looking at the same type of essays they're turning in, whether they're reading a, a textbook or a series of articles or playing the game, uh, and seeing whether they're actually capturing the ideas better or worse than they were without the game. Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm more assessing the game uh, than whether or not they're playing the game well. So for me, it depends on what the simulation is. So I have um, one simulation that I do in my entrepreneurial finance class because I need them to understand how to use Excel really, really well. And so I give them a a challenge where they are consultants to a, a company that has elevators that they need to figure out what's the optimal way to get the elevators to work. So I give them tons of data and they're graded on how they use Excel to analyze the data, what sort of strategies they use to build out a model for what's the optimal use of those elevators. So in that case, I am I have to do the assessment a long way because I'm trying to understand, do they understand the full capabilities of using Excel as a tool? Mm-hmm. And so the simulation gives me the gives me a framework for doing that kind of assessment. But in most cases, I have to agree with Jeremy, where it's at the end of the day, what are they walking away from? So in the case of the negotiation class, they aren't assessed on how well the negotiation went, because it's unfair for me to say, hey, Kathleen, I'm going to sell my business to you, and we work out a deal where I sell my business for $5 million, and Sue sells her business over to Jeremy for $2 million. Well, who got the better deal? And I can't just say, well, $5 million is more than $2 million, so hey, you won. Because if you and I walk away and we hate each other and never want to negotiate again, that's a failure. Versus the $2 million may have opened up many possibilities for new opportunities, or maybe there's other things that they did outside that. So I usually will have a reflection component that is the part that gets graded with the simulation. Because we can talk about it in class, but 
after they've had some time to think about it, process it, and figure out what are they taking away, not only in terms of what did they learn, what are they going to carry forward? That's what I use to determine how effective the simulation was. And for that person, how well did they do overall? So are there steps that you, um, that you want to have within your different simulations as far as, you know, um, when it comes to like mm. you working them and figuring them out, like what are the essential pieces that need to be in this, in this simulation in order for you to even try it out in your classes? That's a really cool question because I think that there's a set process that I use that I haven't really thought about until you just asked this question. Oh. <laughs> but uh, the I think the first and foremost is, are the instructions simple enough that I can give the them the instructions in a relatively short time frame and be able to have them understand it almost fully? Not perfectly. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to expect that. But that's the first step of a good simulation is if it's too complex or if there's too many moving pieces i failed as a designer and then once i get them past the point of understanding it the second part is to what extent is it grabbing their attention to what extent do they want to participate in the simulation versus am i pulling them in do, I'm, I'm making them feel like they have to do the simulation and it's not something good and then the third part is, to what extent are people able to take it seriously? And so there's two components to that. There's the people who will come in and they're like, oh, this is just a simulation. Who cares? I'm just going to goof off. That's one thing. That's a behavioral issue. And I can have one-on-one -on -one conversation with the student. But the other is, if the simulation, they understand it, they're excited to play it, and then as they start to engage with it, the simulation itself drives them out of the simulation they start in the gaminess of the simulation just comes out too strongly and too loudly and they start they can't help but all start treating it like a game then i know i need to go back and fix it and then as we go along we get eventually to the end and to what extent the students want to share their thoughts and insights about what they just experienced that's a really key thing too because at the end of a good simulation, you'll find even the introverted students will want to raise their hands and chime in their perspectives about, this is why I learned. Well, we tried doing this instead. And if you aren't getting that kind of response, if at the end of the simulation, everyone's just sitting there staring at you and saying, so what should we have learned? Then the simulation did not work quite as well as you hoped for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeremy, what do you think? Yeah, I think my my process, I, I do think I have sort of a framework to how I design a classroom game. And it's always, like I said, it starts with learning objective, which is usually tied back to a, a concept or a reading of some sort that they're doing that has nothing to do with a game. Uh, in, a, in a regular classroom, we would read that and maybe have a discussion about it. Maybe they'd write an essay about it or something. Um, so there's some material that we start with. That's the first stage. The second stage before the game then is that they receive the instructions and then are tasked with uh, writing some sort of a strategy paper, um, tying back to that reading. Based on that reading, how do you think you should approach this game that's coming up and commit to that beforehand? Uh, then we play the game, and then afterwards they have a reflection in which the, the assignment is usually something along the lines of what what did you learn? In other words, what didn't go as you anticipated it would have gone when you made your strategy paper? Um, and that usually sparks some good insights where they're not only talking about what happened in the game, but tying it back to the original readings they were doing for the course, um, and then building that out into the discussion going into debrief. So those, those four stages, it's always a material strategy, actually play the game, and debrief. Uh, in most of my games. And that, that tends to be pretty effective as a way of making sure that the lessons are, are taken, that are taken away are at least 75% of them were intended. The other 25% they usually come up with on their own. And usually they're good lessons too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so that's the one thing for me, like approaching the simulation that I ran at Nasaga, because my big struggle, I mean, because this thing, you know, 
running this, you know, two hour long simulation, you know, like hung over my head for months. And I worked through <laughs> so many different ways in which I would want to do, would try to do it. And the thing that I kept going back to was, you know, with my students, it's more or less a closed system, you know, right. specific roles, specific information. There is a right answer. And I think that does sort of fit the world because every time I try to consider multiple objectives, um, I mean, obviously time was an issue. Plus, you know, that means like both time to do it as well as like instructional time to people understand what they're doing and how they're doing it. And even then, like, I think I was, you know, I put a lot into it. How do you handle what to put in when it comes to something that's open-ended, when there can be so many more unexpected consequences? Because it, Jeremy, were you the one that asked about assassinating people? Because it's funny because you brought that up earlier, but I think you were, weren't you the one that did. I don't think I asked about it at the conference. I, I, I was breaking <laughs> rules during the game. I will admit to that, but I was, <laughs> I was staking out hotel lobbies and trying to find people's uh, secret dead drops. No, that was but, awesome. That was, <laughs> that was so good. That was so good. Um, no, but that's the thing, though. I think, you know, especially for people wanting to do something like this, you know, like just like the scale and scope of it for me was probably the hardest part, you know, was how much do I put in? How many, like what, where do I give them real choices and where am I leading them down a path to a very specific outcome that I want them to get to, Mm -hmm. you know, and how do you manage that when you're working with, you know, these sort of complex worlds? Wow. You're asking a great huge question. <laughs> yeah. But I had months to think I on think, it myself. Yes. <laughs> and I don't know that I came up with the right answer. Well, I think, so in the case of your simulation where you said that you had a right answer, yes. there's a right answer, but there isn't a right outcome, which I think is really cool. So there's a right answer because if they did everything right, they'll say, oh, here's the solution and here it is. But right. if they did it wrong, then you still get to have a great discussion about why did this go wrong and where did it go wrong and what would you do the next time and what sort of things could you carry forward and what does this say about espionage in the wider world? Holy cow. Mm-hmm. Well, see, and that's where I think I fell down, honestly, because I feel like in the end it turned into more of an escape room and less mm. than sort of like complex pieces. I think it was like people had fun with it. There was the right answer. You know, people got it. Jeremy's team did. So that's good. If he had gotten it wrong, then he'd be yelling at me right now, I guess. But um. <laughs> Yeah, for the record, I yelled out the correct answer. So yeah. I won no, the game. Okay. You won the winner. Jeremy won, everybody. Jeremy won. Um, no, but I think, but that's, that's why I'm asking this because I don't think I achieved that goal and I wanted it to be one, but, but I would just it's so you know once you start like breaking down that wall of like so many different possibilities you know what I mean I didn't know where they would be at the end so I stuck with something that was more like planned and controlled you know like Mm -hmm. how do you like give up some of that control and and have it go the way you want you know that's the i think especially i don't know if this is true for other people listening but for me this was the big piece that i struggled with yeah well oh sorry go ahead i was i was just from participating in the game um i would say that that was where i think a debrief session which we, we simply don't have time for it was amazing we pulled it off and concluded that game in the time allotted and we actually did end it right at the deadline um but I know in follow-up conversations and talking to people um, at the other group and how they did it and how we did it, we had some interesting discussions there about the problem-solving aspects and how groups organize information and organize tasks. And I also – something came up the other day. Uh, what was it? It was, a, it was like at a Dungeons & Dragons game. There was some clue, and I was like, oh, it's a replacement cipher. And it turned out not to be a replacement cipher, but the fact that I knew it was a replacement cipher came from your game. Okay. And so I, I think if we had had a chance to debrief, and, and often what I think happens in these complex simulations is every participant in the simulation doesn't learn all of the lessons and doesn't see all of the simulation. They see their part. Right. And then when they discuss with someone else who saw a different part in that exchange, they're like, oh, I didn't even realize that was going on. Right. 
now I'm yeah. learning how, how these things work together. Well, and the thing that's interesting, you know, when it comes to this with my students is, yes, they're learning about espionage and they're learning about cryptology and they're learning different ways to make codes and break codes and, you know, try to conceal information and how do you communicate, you know, in clandestine yet public ways and stuff. But really, you know, it is about problem solving and teamwork and collaboration. And so... I feel in some ways for there, that was interesting because there were some examples of really great problem solving, teamwork and collaboration. But then I had some guy come up to me later and say for the alpha group, which was the much larger group, that he felt like there was one core group of people that kind of took over. And -hmm. then there was a sort of like outer group where they didn't feel as involved. They didn't feel as engaged. Like he felt like basically that I probably should have made it into smaller groups, which is true. But then there's also that part of me that's saying... You know, well, but you're an adult. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, it's like, <laughs> no. I didn't tell you you couldn't. You can like, handle you yourself. Know, Come on. Well, I mean, well, but but it's also, but I also understand too from his perspective. Like, he's following my rules too. You know what I mean? Right. So there's like that kind of. But I thought it was an interesting, you know, kind of thing where I mean, I would expect that maybe from my students, you know. But I was that was something where you know it's like, huh? So was this a failure on my part? to explain, to teach problem solving and communication and collaboration and how groups can organize themselves? Or, you know, was this a a fail? And I'm not saying failure, you know what I mean? But like a failure on his Mm -hmm. part or on people who didn't feel like they were part, like, why didn't they say, hey, all of us in the periphery, let's, you know, let's, let's come on over here. You know, like, where was that sort of secondary leader to kind of rally those troops, you know? So I think in that aspect, you know, um, man, maybe that should have been <laughs> the simulation. Like, make the groups totally. I mean, that was an idea was to not put anybody in any groups and just give them information and like uh-huh. have a have a go. Yeah. You know, I think what you're hitting on are two points that are both inherent in the creative process in general. Mm-hmm. So the first is having trust in the simulation and the creator of the simulation that. You need to, there has to be a level of trust of I, that you as the creator can trust the participants to fully engage and do their best to, to learn and have fun and participate in whatever the simulation is. But also they have to be able to trust that you have designed this in a way that they will be able to get something out of it. And mm-hmm. in a case like what you had, you weren't able to build that trust up front in a classroom you you get to know your students you mm-hmm. get to build that rapport and so you can say guys we're going to do this simulation and if something starts to go sideways they will raise their hand and say hey is this correct or they'll come up and talk to you and because that trust is there but in a one-off sort of thing it's a lot harder so you have to work that much more carefully and diligently up front to in the rules that you set up in the first time that you're interacting with them and in a very short time say we can have this level of trust. If something's going sideways, let me know. So that's part of it. And then the other part is in the creative process, there's the the constant need to accept what is being handed to you using the idea of yes and. I'm uh-huh. taking an improv class, so that's part of where this is coming from at the moment. Yeah. But the, the idea of, of improv is that you don't turn to someone and say no. You mm-hmm. say yes and now this is a cool idea in improv in simulations that's not 100 percent correct you have yes and no and you have and and but mm-hmm. yes is whatever you said i'm taking it i'm going to build off of it no is i'm going to reject it but the words and and but then modify them and is i'm now going to build off of but is i'm going to do a twist on it so yes and is i hear what you say and this is a so if they raise a problem yes that's a problem and here's the solution or i can say yes but I want you to figure out what the solution is. And now you can turn it back on them and give them the power to say, well, okay, what would I do or how can I make the simulation better? Or I want to do this crazy thing. I want to, to build flying carpets in a World War I simulation. No, you can't do that. And you now need to figure out what is a viable solution in order to be able to go forward. Or you can say, no, but that's a really interesting thing. Why don't you sink several million of your country's dollars into this and squander it away and see what ends up happening? 
-hmm. and probably nothing good will happen, but maybe something. But using those four combinations of yes, no, and, and but, you can get you can get everyone involved into the simulation that even if they're sitting there and saying, oh man, there's that inner group, you as a designer now are a co-designer along with the participants. Right. And that's, that's where you have to be willing to let creative control of your simulation go to some extent because now you're creating with everyone on the fly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. And I think that's, I think that's true. I think the, the trust aspect was certainly, um, you know, you know, there's lots of things like in retrospect that I'm, you know, I'm certainly glad I did it because I learned a ton from it and it was really fun to do. Um, but yeah, like the trust aspect, but also like the simple instructions. I don't think I gave simple instructions at the beginning, <laughs> you know, um, Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Not necessarily about this, not necessarily about my thing in general, but just, you know, as far as uh, what we were talking about with all the different pieces and what you put into it. Yeah, I do. I, I think I have some, something of an advantage as a political scientist and the, the things that I teach and study and that most of them to begin with are group decision-making processes. That's what we study is how, how, how do groups come together and make rules and then make decisions based on those rules. Um, and so usually when, when something like that fails, uh, that would be a perfect place where we could say, okay, let's go look at case studies of intelligence failures. Um, and my guess is we'll find plenty of, of examples where a clue was missed, a, a sign was not seen, a disaster was not averted because a small group of people got together in a closed room to analyze it rather than bringing in everyone into the decision-making process or the analysis process. And that becomes just a, a springboard for further, further discussion, further analysis. Um, I don't think I've ever had a simulation I couldn't rescue and, and debrief with, with some lesson that tied to something that we were teaching in, oh, yeah. in one of my classes. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the whole thing was like a total botch or anything, but I just thought it was such an interesting kind of laboratory kind of experiment to take something that I did with seventh graders in a very controlled setting and putting it out there with adults, you know. Um, and you not just any adults. Adults that play and design games and education for, I mean, they, it was that is a group of people who are going to push the game as far as they can. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You went from a, a group that's going to, we're going back to that whole trust thing. You went from a group that you could trust to, to come to you if there were issues, but they could trust you because you've built up this rapport with them to a group of people whose idea of trust is they won't backstab each other when the party goes down, down the hallway if they're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Like, <laughs> you, you went from the two, two different extremes, and yeah. so you super stress test your simulation is what it comes down to. Oh, see, that's success, uh, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it is. it was really good. Yeah, no, I mean, it was just, I mean, I, I always like a challenge. I'm not trying to make this about me, you know, obviously, but I mean, I like a challenge, and it was a fun one to take on. I learned a ton from it, so which is, I think, all you can hope to do in something like that. Um, I probably mm -hmm. wouldn't run one for like another year or so, maybe two, you know, <laughs> take a break. But uh, it was super fun, though. And honestly, for anybody out there listening, please give Nasaga a shot because uh, it was it was really, really interesting. Probably best professional development. But speaking of, um, it's getting a little bit late and I want to make sure you guys can get lots of beauty sleep. Um, what resources would you suggest people look into if they're interested in designing, so are there any particular books or websites or whatever, where should, where can people go to start finding some good places to start? There's a guy named Jesse Shell who does game design and he has written an incredible book that gets you to focus on the different lenses of mm -hmm. game design. And he actually has a deck of cards and each card has the lens of the customer, the lens of creativity, the lens of balance. I think using that, if you've never done a simulation before in your life, or you're looking to super advance your, the simulations that you've created, using each of those lenses can really help you think through different aspects of the simulation that you're creating to make sure that you are considering all things. Not all the lenses will be necessarily applicable, but mm -hmm. it's an awesome tool and resource. Okay, cool. Jeremy, what would you suggest? 
I would suggest, um, yeah, I'll give another plug for the saga, um, just because there is there is a lot to be learned by getting in a big group of people who are also thinking about these issues, but in different environments, and then just hearing ideas bounce off of one another, seeing what other people are doing. Um, I always come back with something that I use from that conference that, that improves another game. Um, if you're specifically in political science or in an area, government, history even, um, there is a blog called Active Learning in Political Science. It's uh, a group of political scientists who are big into games and simulations, uh, run that. They take guest posts. And you find all kinds of examples there of, of from the simple to the complex uh, things that you can bring directly into the classroom. Um, and it's actually, I mean, I know there's, there's, uh, I, I've run into some articles from business, uh, from the business schools, uh, in economics and political science. There's a pretty, um, robust community of people who are publishing in some of the, you know, practice journals and things about classroom simulations and others out there. So, uh, if you have access to a university library, so you don't have to pay 50 bucks to get access to an academic journal, uh, just do a, do a quick search in Google Scholar there and you can turn up some, some good resources. And there's also a ton of resources that if you just are looking for a specific topic, if you want to teach something about leadership or uh, strategy or communication or something like that, Google is your friend. The number of times that I've used that in order to find the foundation of a simulation that I then built out in 100 different directions, mm -hmm. it's awesome to see what's out there. Cool. Well, and I have to say, too, that I met David at Gen Con, and he and um, – was it, is it your brother? My brother. Yep. Okay. Um, Jim Tomchek. He, he and his brother presented on running large scale simulations. And actually, your packet I gave to Jeremy. Um, oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah, the, on the World War One simulation because it's a little bit advanced for my homies and we don't really get into World War One. Uh, we're more of like World War Two and um, just kidding. Um, no, totally so fair. anyway, so I actually shared that with Jeremy. So Jeremy now is the proud owner of that bad boy. Uh, but anyway, so you did a big, you know, like double session at Gen Con's trade day um, for other educators on um, on simulations of the classroom, which is that's how we met. And that's where yeah. I say we have to I have to have you on the show because there's so many people and then meeting Jeremy, too. And this just became a happy little family. So um, thank you guys so much um, for doing this. But yeah, but um, if so, if people want to reach you. Um, to find out more about what you do, how you do it, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? I, by all means, feel free to reach out to me. My email is d-a-t-o-m-c-z-y-k at quinnipiac.edu, which I will send yes. so you can post it. <laughs> God help people trying to spell all of this. Right. <laughs> Polish name with an Indian name. No, it's not going to work. But uh, that is one of the easiest ways to reach me, and I'm always available to help out however I can. That's awesome. Yeah, same here. Um, my email is just uh, jcadell, C-A-D-D-E-L, at W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U. I will send it so you can put it in the podcast notes or something. But uh, um, yeah, we're, we're undergoing a, a change in our website at the university now. It's being updated, so I have no idea what the status of my my sort of faculty page where I used to post some of this stuff is mm -hmm. right now. But uh, hopefully that will get back up and I can put some notes up there and other things that might be of use. Okay. Well, and then we'll have show notes to go along with this too. So if there's anything in particular, that can be posted um, as well. So thank you guys so much um, for, for, for doing this tonight. This was really, really good. Um, I mean, selfishly for myself, but I think for a lot of people who want to create large-scale, immersive sort of simulation experiences, I think there's a lot of really good pieces that you could take from this that, you know, can help them make more informed choices about what they do. And also probably, <laughs> you know, just, you know, just try, <laughs> you know, what yes. I mean? like it's always, mm -hmm. it's always going to be a learning experience. There's always going to be the unexpected, you know, it's, but you know, I've, I've said this a million times, you know, kids would rather play a bad game than no game at all. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's just about engagement and keeping them happy, but, you know, if you're have people engaged and they're learning while they're doing it, like, that's just the best thing ever. It's why we do what we do. So um, any last final words or thoughts? No, I would say that's, that's, that's a great final message. Just give it a try. You don't need to be a, 
a professional game designer or anything, uh, if you're a teacher or an instructor, it's not that different. And I will reiterate your point about failure isn't a bad thing in this case. It's just a step in the process. You're going to do horribly your first time. And that's great because the second time is going to be so much better as a result. <laughs> there, you, there you go. We shall hope. <laughs> <laughs> we shall hope. No, I, I will say for my seventh graders, it actually goes really well. Thank you very much. And I made it honestly a little bit easier for Nisai. I gave them a few like kind of obvious, just because just to give them some hope of finishing in the two hours and they did. So I was actually super glad you guys were able to finish. Um, so that was cool. But anyway, well, thank you guys so much. This is Kathleen Mercury. You can find all my game design teaching resources at KathleenMercury.com. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Mercury with seven M's. So, it's, you know, seven M's and Mercury. Um, and so this has been another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries, and thanks so much for listening and have fun. Bye. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. No, you guys are awesome. Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at inversegenius.com, where we have other great shows such as On Board Games, On RPGs, On Minis Games, and The Room Escape Divas. Games in Schools and Libraries podcast is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System. You can come and play games with me at the Waccamonic Branch Library in Georgetown County, South Carolina, in Polly's Island. 